In business and in baseball, success is all about achieving your vision. You're listening to the Executive Access Podcast, The Business of Baseball, presented by Cone Resnick. Advisory, assurance, tax. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. My colleagues Brian Kenny and Dan O'Dowd of MLB Network sat down with four prominent general managers after the 2018 season came to a close. Listen as Alex Anthopoulos, Rick Hahn, Dayton Moore, and Mike Rizzo discuss how the game has changed from when they first started their careers, the keys in staying competitive, and working with the right group of people to get a successful product on the field. Guys, welcome. It's great to have you here. I like how we all said no sport coats. And Alex, you see, we all we almost brought out sport coats. <laughs> we tricked you, of course, a power move immediately uh, on all of you. I, I, Dayton, I think you're the longest tenured GM here, right? 2006. All right, you, um, you're, you're 2009. 2009 for, you, right? okay. for me, what, yeah. what year? 2010. 2010, and, and Rick? Okay. How different is the baseball front office now compared to the one that you were first in when you took over? Well, I would say this. It's a lot more fun because of the diverse opinions. Uh, now, we all share the same vision, um, but there's so many you know, diverse opinions. You, you have, I know from our perspective, we have a, a great blend of, of traditional baseball viewpoints and um, the growth and the excitement and the energy of young people in our office who are, are bringing uh, uh, new ideas, new recommendations, different ways of looking at things, certainly with all the advanced technology. So it's, it's very stimulating. And, you know, this time of year is, is so much fun because, you know, we, we all get to the office early and we get a chance to sit around and just talk baseball. And at the end of the day, we all get a chance to, again, visit and, and talk baseball and, uh, and exchange different ideas. But, how, big, uh, how much bigger is the department now? A lot. You know, 75% of our major league front office has been hired in the last six years. So, so yeah. head count. What is what a head count from when you start? Oh, Dan, I would say I would say we've got about uh, uh, 20, 25 people yeah. in our in our baseball operations. How big is yours? Well, we, I, I first, we don't have enough office space. I can tell you. <laughs> mm -hmm. I remember when we were in Arizona for all those years in Arizona. When I was the scouting director, we we had a five man five man front office. If we had a five-man front office, we're, we're at about, we've got about a seven-man analytical department right now. In our, so that's where we've come. We've probably got about, about 15, 15 front office personnel uh, that uh, are directly in, in, uh, in the day-to-day -day, uh, baseball ops. And uh, we've got, a, we've, you know, as, as Dayton said, uh, we're, where we've come from analytically, uh, when I first took over in, uh, I, I got here in 06 when, when we got the franchise and, uh, and since we took over in 09, we, the analytical department went from zero to, uh, you know, we've got seven full-time guys that, uh, that challenge you every day and, and, uh, you know, make you think outside the box in my mind and, uh, and challenge, challenge the, uh, the, uh, old school, typical scouting eye to, to the maximum. And they're, they're great, uh, they're great conversations. And I think what's, what's, so fundamentally sound about uh, the approaches of all the all the uh, front offices now is, uh, you know, there's great respect in our analytic department with our traditional scouts and our traditional scouts with the analytics. And if you don't have respect between the two, it deteriorates fast. So. Let me ask you a question on that, though. I'm curious that you guys respond to this too. Is that, you know, when I got into the game, it was I didn't play the game professionally, so I was the statistical guy. Now it's gone to the other direction. It's that you really don't play the game anymore. What you learn is the byproduct of you know the knowledge that you gain and what you what you study. Is there any concern on your, amongst your guys' part that part of the learning curve of the game is actually watching the game and learning the game? Because the evolution of the GM, I would say, has changed a little bit too, hasn't it, Rick? No, that's that's very true. But I think at the same time, what we've tried to do is not necessarily limit who's involved in the conversation, but instead expand the skill sets and the background of those who are at the table. There is no substitute for the playing experience. I did not enjoy that. I didn't have, wasn't blessed with the ability to play beyond high school, so I sort of know where there's certain limitations in the, the breadth of my knowledge. And whether it's a guy like Jim Tomey or Chris Getz, who we both had the pleasure of employing, uh, guys who have been in the trenches, guys who view the game from a different, different perspective, who understand that heartbeat on a day-to-day -day basis, that might be a little more difficult for someone who didn't play professionally to, to appreciate. The, the, the pie's expanded in terms of who's involved. Uh, I certainly don't see it as uh, those who haven't played replacing necessarily those who have. It's just sort of been a shifting of, 
perhaps who may ultimately be uh, amongst the final decision makers, but the pie's expanded in terms of who's sitting at the table as opposed to contracting. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's changed a ton. I remember as an AG, I remember we still would use a fax to get, <laughs> to get stuff done, and I'm, you know, I'm still so, somewhat young. So um, there's no doubt the office overall has expanded. I, mean, I can tell you just in Atlanta, we have a new ballpark, and we had to basically build out a wing, and our, our chairman, Terry McGurk, was great, but we didn't have enough room. We didn't have enough room for people in our the, the R&D department and so on. Is We want everybody in one area, and um, they basically knocked down some walls, and they opened up a whole area, and because we're trying, I think it's so competitive today to get any edge that you can, can that, that, that you can to stay ahead of the, the curve in all areas. Um, I think every club's trying to do it, so it's not that it wasn't done in the past, I just think front offices are growing so fast, it's become so competitive. How hard is it to stay on top of all the information? It's, it's difficult, uh, the, you know, departments are growing and uh, I, I think that, you know, the, to me the new renaissance is, is people. It, it, we all have the analytics, we all have the departments, we all crunch the numbers, we all do the shifts. We, you know, everyone's kind of on the same, same part. So it's really not a kind of advantage. It, it the advantage has kind of gone away. Uh, you know, you know, Billy made that movie and, you know, he threw everything out the window. <laughs> you know, he told all the secrets. And uh, it's so we, you know, I, I think the new, the new frontier is, is the people. You know, the people you surround yourself what with. What do you mean by that? Thing? It's, it, you know, to me, I have a, cer I have a certain skill set. You know, I, I uh, we, we all have come to this job in, in different, scouting, in different ways. Different right. ways, you know what I mean? Scouting, player development. I, farm director and scouting director I was a minor league player you know you get a feel for what it took you know you get an appreciation for what these what these guys can do and, and believe me on a nightly basis they make this stuff look easy and it, you know as as I found out you know in a short minor league career it's not easy you know what I mean and uh, it's uh, but it, it it really shows you what it takes to play this and they have an appreciation for it but the people that you surround yourself with you know, we, uh, you know, you have an assistant, you know, in, in our case, we have an assistant who's an expert with the rules and, and an analytical department that, that feeds us the, and taught me the analytics of the game. And uh, if you, you know, told me 10 years ago, I'd be, you know, we'd be looking at WOBA and WOBA Plus and all, all this stuff, uh, you know, it'd be like, you know, speaking a foreign language to me. So, yeah, BK uh, got a big smile when you said WOBA. Well, you see, you know, we're, all, we're all there, BK. We, you know, we, you we did, right. we've done it. And, you know, let me ask you, you, this you came from the boxing world and you're into it now. That's so, it, yeah, no, exactly. of course. Um, I, I wonder, like, when it's not, um, when the front offices go from one group think to now where it's largely Ivy League whiz kids, right? Is it in danger well, of, of where, right, well, okay, right, you're a little more school of hard knocks. <laughs> yeah. um, but is there a thought where, okay, still people are kind of locked into the same person doing that job? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt the backgrounds of everyone that are coming into the game have certainly evolved. Um, I still think the element we talk about, I think being able to connect with players, knowing how the, they all fit, trying to build a team. Um, like Riz talked about, we all have the same data. The way we, we take that data, the way we apply that data is completely different. But I also think the human element, the character element, it's something that I took a few years to, to learn. Um, you can look at talent and the production, what someone's going to do, but how the individual players will fit together on a team I think is very real. And having a sense of what people you bring into your, your cl clubhouse, how they impact other players, I think is really important, and that's where, if you haven't played and haven't been in a, in a clubhouse, I think that takes time. I think you could learn that, but I think it does take time. Is there science on that now? I mean, have we got? Is it like, oh, he's a good guy, he's a good guy, or are we more sophisticated in trying to figure out what the group dynamic is? Well, I think we are, because number one, I think we really enjoy having baseball conversations, and I think that there is more and more people that understand that the, the clubhouse, it's a living, it's a living, breathing organism, okay, and and there is. Uh, a chemistry aspect to this and so you have people in your organization that are strictly focused on digging on the background and all the way from when they're in high school certainly college what type of teammates they were we we, we have so much information I mean well, heck, the, the, the players today expose themselves make it easy for us because of social media right we, we know who they are and what they're about we know what their likes and their dislikes are we know if they really love baseball and that's the bottom line, but we have people that are experts in doing that, and they, they thrive in that, and they love to, to, to figure out the character analysis, and uh, so it's, again, it's a part of the discussion is as we blend talent together and uh, put together championship teams. It's really important. Where are we on that? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, we're, you know, we're 
it, it's cliche-ish, but uh, you know, you're you're with you're with the the people in the clubhouse more than your families. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a it's seven months inundated with these with this group of men, and uh, and it's uh, you've got to you know you've got to find a group that uh, that meshes and 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 can and can overcome the ebbs and flows of a, of a typical season and the teams that do it best are the teams that win. Yes, speaking of that then, the, the relationship, you know, for me the relationship between the manager and the GM was pretty much one of the most crucial relationships, other than your owner, crucial relationships within an organization. How, how based on what Mike just said, you know, the, and what Dayton said about the clubhouse being a living, breathing organism, did you use that line before? That was really I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure I stole it from somewhere. It was good. I'm going to stick it. Is um, from your perspective, how is that? Has that changed? Is it more important? What is the role of today's manager in the game versus maybe where it was, you know, not long ago? Well, you know, the the manager is the sole individual at the organization who twice a day is meeting with the media before the game and after the game. Uh, he's also the one who, unlike any of us, is probably touching all 25 players on a daily basis. So it's essential that he is one who not only helps set the tone, but carry, is on the same page with the front office in terms of what we're trying to articulate as our priorities and to teach our players and to hold the players accountable for, for uh, meeting those expectations. From a relationship standpoint, you know, whether it's Ricky Renteria or before him Robin Ventura, for me, it's someone that you have that innate trust with, that you know you're in this together. You know, even though you may disagree on a seventh inning call to the bullpen over the course of a 162-game season or a hit-and-run decision on a given night, you know from a larger level that the two of you, and, the, and by extension the front office and the coaching staff, are in lockstep in terms of what the organizational priorities are and how we're going to execute our plan. That, that level of trust is the most essential ingredient from my standpoint. Alex, in, in your particular case, I'm just curious, you know, um, going into a new organization, was that a priority for you trying to figure out that relationship? I think it's really important. Um, all the things that were talked about here with trust and so on. One, manager needs to have the respect of the players. I mean, as much they might be great with the, the X's and O's and so on, but the respect of the players, that's, that, they won't get anywhere without starting with that. But then, like it was talked about, the relationship between the general manager and the manager, the right, the right guy to manage the Braves with me as the general manager and, and our group may not be the right guy to manage for Dayton or to manage for Rick yeah, or right, for Riz. So um, I think early on, when you start these jobs, you think about the same way as a player. You're trying to check the boxes with, with tools, and it's more fit for the community, for the person, for your, your style. Certainly, you're going to have things that you want, you want to do, but... As as you guys know, I mean, it's there are days that you're gonna have some tough. You're gonna have a tough conversation one way or the other, and there better be that trust. You may not agree with things, but the next day you better show up. And the minute you don't feel comfortable walking into that office is the minute you have a major problem, mm. and you know it when it's not right. Oh, and yeah, you, right. You, you and it's 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 every day, and there's a lot. No doubt, yeah. it's each day, and that relationship's really important. That said. Uh, the relationship with the players as well and the manager with the players and his staff is is equally as important. So to find someone that can connect both of those areas is very hard. Has the criteria changed for that job, do you guys think? Then it's I, I think it's I think it's the most difficult coaching job in all sports. It's the most dissected, micromanaged by social media. It's the most it's the most second guessed coaching position in all sports, the manager of a major league team. Uh, because the game is slower. You have time. You have to. You have time to think about and and, and to uh, uh, discuss each and every move they make. Uh, you know, it, it, you got your reliever up too early, too late. You left him in too long. Why didn't you hit and hit and run for him? Why didn't you pinch run for this guy? It's a dissected and, and with social media, it's made it. It's made the job even harder. Why did you look at me when you said second guess? <laughs> 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 that's, that's a, that's a, that is real As I say on the show, I said. You can agree with the manager. That is one of the options. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me ask you this question. Is that with the wealth of analytics that come down, because the game's changed even since I've been gone from doing the job. So where, how does that process now take place where you've got, you know, analytics are black and white. I mean, it's, it's black and white, and they don't lie, but the game is played in a gray area. And so how does that dynamic work? Because, we, you know, we've talked a lot about in the World Series. And it's talked a lot about in the game today. So how how does that take place within the confines of your organization? 
Well, I, I know for us, you know, Ned Yost and I grew up in a very traditional way in the game, right? We grew up with the Braves. It was scouting. It was player development. Um, and as we have grown and learned to embrace analytics and, and, and other ways of analyzing this game, one of the things that, that we've done, we've asked our analytical department to create a lineup each and every day. Now, when I first spoke to Ned about that, you know, you can imagine just the, the atmosphere, right? And I said, Ned, it just makes sense, okay? So the, 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 the game is changing. It's going to help you in those press conferences before and after as you set your lineup, lineup construction, et cetera. And so uh, Ned has embraced it. He's well, smart. Can he take that lineup and change it if he chooses Oh, yeah. To? No, no. It's, it's his, he's got the power of the lineup card. I've never asked Ned uh, to play a certain player. I've never said take a guy out of the lineup or hit him here, or hit him there. We talk about it, but ultimately he has to make that decision. Right. Okay, so, but he's learned to embrace the different opinions from our analytical department. Mike Grootman used to send him a lineup. Now John Williams sends him a lineup each and every day. It says why a certain player should play against this matchup when they bring in a, a certain reliever, who should be uh, involved in that game, who should be involved in that match. And Ned can use it if he well, wants. Well, that's way different. Yeah, you know, but, but it's, it's important. It just, and it helps you after the game. It helps him prepare for those scenarios. So he's been a better position to uh, uh, articulate that message to our fans and the media and ownership. Is that similar it, dynamics it, with it, you guys? It is similar, and, and I think the important part to emphasize is that the manager ultimately is a personnel man and therefore he has the ability to put the personnel in the best position that he sees fit. We want him to make that decision based on all the information he has, whether it's the lineup that comes down from the front office or the conversation he has with a player about what's going on off the field in his personal life on a given night. As long as he has justification or a reason for going against the numbers, let's say, that's great. He's hired to put these guys in the best position, use the information we have provided or you have provided, you've gotten off a of video or you've gotten in your conversations, and make the best decision. That's all we're looking for. One last thing on the uh, the modern front office. Mike, I think you might have a little more room to play with here in your organization. Um, building a front office is pretty cost effective, right, as compared to buying players. If you had a free reign to build any size department you wanted, what's the ideal size to be able to be big enough and yet still make decisions? Right, I think uh, in, in the front office portion of it, uh, I, I think you have to have uh, a handful of your lieutenants that you trust, uh, that, uh, that you, you have your analytical department, you have your scouting department. If I, if I were to, to spend on luxury items, to me, I'd, I'd, I'd pour all my money into scouting and player development. That, that's, where I, that's where I handle, that's where I put my excess money. More scouts, more coaches, more ideas, more, more eyes, more eyes, because we already have the, the analytical department. We've got the front office with the handful of lieutenants. Too many cooks, my mother always said, you know, spoil the broth. <laughs> right, right. So it, it's, you want to have a comfortable amount of people you trust. And, and uh, but if I had excess of money, if, they, if our ownership said to me, you've got to spend X amount of dollars, I would pour it into scouting and player development. Because some organizations have like GMs and ex-GMs all over the place. And it's, it, that's a lot of brain power, but Again, can you get paralyzed by too many decision makers? I, there's, there's no doubt you can have too many. I think like Mike talked about, I think having strong people that run a department are key. Um, I certainly agree that and there's no doubt scouting and player development. And that could be from an, from an R&D standpoint as well to help right. with some of the data and some of the information as well. But you know, from my standpoint, the, the holy grail that we still haven't reached as an industry is in the draft. Our success rate for the money that we spend, we're still not there yet. And, there's still a lot of examples of late picks that we can make better, and I think there's a lot of opportunity in player development to improve players. Um, but I do think there's a lot of things inherent in the draft. We rush, we scramble, we only have so many nights to go see players so much in, in the summer. The value of those players is huge. Um, and as an industry, we're still not where we should be, in my mind. I'm not, and I, don't have, I certainly don't have the answers. I don't think anybody does, but um, I think more looks, more information, more, more data at that level is important, um, and that's probably where I'd want to spend well, it. Let me, let me add something. It, it's, it's the most over-evaluated generation pl of players in the history of our game. We have so much information on it. And wh where I think we can really move forward and separate ourselves is in player development. 
I mean, I really do, as, as Alex said. I, I think that we can continue to do more in helping come alongside players, make them good, help them make good choices off the field to free them up to na do, nat do what they do naturally on the field. I think there's a, that's a, an area that's, that's really untapped. We've got to be more progressive in those areas. Kids are faced with unbelievable challenges today, and we expect them to perform in a game that requires so much concentration and focus and a game that moves slow. And if they can't separate, they're going to be in trouble. And if they're dealing with a lot of things off the field, it's going to be very problematic over 162 well, games. Well, you think about what one minor league player that helps you at the big league level is worth, just if you calculate it in war, is phenomenal for the Rick, cost of return. Rick, one last thing then. Does the, the departments get larger and larger? Are we not there yet as oh. to the, the expanding front office? I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. And it's not necessarily the, the physical bricks and mortar of who's in Chicago in our situation. It's what's spread around the country, who's at our spring training facility, who's with each of our affiliates and the support that we can give our, our scouts and player development people who are outside of Chicago. I count that as sort of part of our, of our baseball operations. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, you know, to go back to the original question, if there's this unlimited opportunity to expand, I think all of us would be eager to find ways to continue to support the area scout or go, the, the roving hitting instructor at each level of our affiliates. There's something more that we could be doing if we wanted to. The mental and spiritual health of the player is so crucial the to them re reaching their ceiling. Yeah. And we, we've got it, especially the mental health and what these guys are, are faced with today. Different challenges for players coming out of high school and college today than there was when I first broke into professional baseball in 94. You know, in, in some of the ways players are being evaluated so much more, like, you know, Mike, when we scouted in Dayton early on in our careers, I mean, a lot of it was based upon experience. But now as data enters the world of scouting and development, you know, kids are getting caught up in a lot of things regarding spin rate and exit velocity, and you were, were evaluating down to the core, almost creating almost a fear-based mentality from an evalu evaluatory standpoint in younger players. I don't know if that's good for a game um, because we are bearing down on them so hard to get the decisions right. But at the same point in time, that's creating an incredible amount of pressure on kids to meet a level of expectation when they're still 17 and 18 years old. Well, Dayton said it's 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 a it's a different it's a different way of life than uh, than we than it was when we started scouting. Uh, yeah, we remember when we started scouting, you you know, there was no you know the area code games. It wasn't this complex you know tryout kind of baseball where where we're doing a lot of our evaluations in, in the summertime. You went to uh, you know you went to uh, American, Legion. American Legion games. Mm -hmm. You you sat there and saw a guy for a weekend play in the summertime, and uh, especially up in the mi upper Midwest, that's when you got your work done and uh, to scout. It was uh, the nice days in the summer. In the spring, it's you know it's too cold to scout, too cold to play. So you did a lot of your work in the in the summer, and and it was it was a more laid back. Guys were playing baseball uh, only, uh, and then in the football season they'd play football, and in the basketball season they'd play basketball. It wasn't this, you know, kind of. Uh, almost a tryout type of, uh, of evaluation process where you go s throw as hard as you can for the gun, see if you can get drafted as high as you can, and, and, uh, and then you're kind of thrown to the wolves. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different way of, uh, of, of looking at the player, and, and I agree. The, uh, the, uh, the mental aspect of it is, is something that we were woefully uh, uh, missing when, when we first took over here. We've, we've since really concentrated a lot up, upon it because you're, you've got 17-year-old kids with the pressure of playing away from home for the first time and then the social media aspect of it, which we've never had to deal with until you know, the last couple of years. A lot of teams recently have gone the route of uh, ex-player liaisons, right? From the baseball ops, uh, pitch designers, uh, hitting designers, to translate what maybe some of your um, you know, more brilliant mathematicians have figured out, then to translate it to the players. Is that the route now, or is there another way of doing it? What's the best way of getting that information so a player is listening to someone and can actually hear it? I think the ability, we have all the information, all the data. The ability to take that data and make it, make it actionable is, is key. And the former player, they can connect. And it doesn't always have to be a former player. There's other players, there's other individuals we have in, in the office that can connect with players, that can sit down with them, talk, talk with them. Um, I think like everyone, like everyone said, the players want information. They want the knowledge. Um, I think like anything else, I don't think you could ram it down their throat. It's their career. I think you talk through what you're seeing. I think you also have to decide what you do want to bring down there. I think if you bring, and the other component is you, you should feel pretty good about being right. 
You, you start doing that, and you, you're wrong, you're done. So uh, you better vet it internally in the office, wherever you're doing it, before it goes down to, down to a coach or a player and so on. Talk through it. Make sure you've kind of poked holes in it. I mean, from our standpoint, we'll probably talk to a coach first. Here's what we're seeing. Here's some things that some of our, some of our guys in the R&D department pulled up. So we have some film, some video. Um, what do you think? Is there something we're not considering here? Something we And br break it down, and then at that point, when the coach is on side, well, we may tweak and they may not agree. And at that point, we're not prepared to deliver to a player. We may continue to watch certain characteristics. And then at that point, maybe a week later, a month later, we're prepared to talk to the player about it. You know, you know one of the, big, one of the, the things that, that uh, the players, at least from our group, have, have had the most difficulty with is the shifting, right? especially the pitching staff, right? And so what, what we've done, un, not unlike most of you, is we've had our, our analytical guys sit down with our players, sit down with the, the, the pitcher, be a part of that meeting, that pregame meeting, say, look, this is why we're going to shift and this is why we believe this and here's the information. And, and that way we've just kind of taken the confrontation out of, out of it and so they can see the information. So and, that's, I'm sorry. And you have to prepare them for that ball that's inevitably going to go through the six hole mm -hmm. after you vacated it, you know, where, where Abner put them. You know, and they're giving up base <laughs> hits. This is a guy sitting there for exactly. 100 years, and, 100 now, years you and now you're right. costing me hits. <laughs> but again, the, the, the player has become so sophisticated with this information that yeah. they hey, get it. Let me ask you this question then on analytics, is that we talked about as it relates to the clubhouse, what about player acquisition? You know, does that take, if, if you look at entire pie, you know, what percentage now has the game gotten to where you're making that decision based on analytics versus making that decision based upon scouting information and how it applies to your club? I, I don't think there's, there's been a decision we've made in the last five years without analytics being involved. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the, perf the perfect uh, comfort level is when the analytics and the scouting eye match up and they're, also, they're both saying the same thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, our job is break ties. You know, we're, we're, we, you know, we're the decision maker. We pull the trigger. we got to break the ties. So and, is that a gut and, feeling that you have? I, I think it's, it, it could be a gut feeling. It could, it could, be, it could be your experience. I, I know for myself, uh, when I've seen it with, with my eyes, uh, I, I believe it. Uh, you, know, I've, uh, you know, I've scouted long enough. I've evaluated enough players where, you know, it's, it's, it's our neck on the line. And, and you know, we've got to make the decision. So we're, we're the trigger puller, and we're, we break the ties. And, uh, and on those days, we, we've, I've made... I've made deals based, weighted heavily on, on analytical information. I've made deals based heavily on a scout's information. Uh, and like I said, the perfect world is when they both, when they both mesh. And, and, uh, but uh, you've, you've got to make the decision. And uh, in certain situations and certain scenarios uh, lead you to a certain conclusion. And, uh, and how you get there uh, is based on all the information, your experience level, your comfort level on, on that player, uh, and, and what the information tells you. Yeah, those days when it all lines, those are good days because those are those are rare. And 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 frankly, when when uh, I first got into this position, that was one of the hard, most difficult parts for me was waiting for it all to align, waiting for the analytics to point this direction and the scouting to point this direction, and a move that the clubhouse would feel good about and the, would resonate with the fans, and just waiting for that perfect sweet spot. And, and unfortunately, we don't live in that perfect world too often. Uh, so it is a matter of waiting. And the conversations I have with Kenny Williams about player acquisition, it's all part of the, it's all part of the conversation. Uh, given Kenny's background, where he spent time in scouting and player development and, and had his method of doing things versus mine, which is a non-playing background, we might problem solve in different ways. But all that information is part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Alex, what about you? Um, yeah, I, I agree, obviously. When you have both. You're all in. I mean, if you have both things that line up, you, you will definitely go, at least from my standpoint, you will go hard after that, that player and you'll really push and, and, uh, and do a little bit more. I do think I'm a big believer in the how and why. I want things to make sense, to line up. I'm just not a big, hey, I'd have a gut on this, this guy. Uh, depending on how big the signing is or the, the trade is, I probably need a little bit more than that. Um, but if we think we're, we're, we're going to improve on, on a player, we're going to make his curveball better, we're going to make changes to his swing approach, I want to know why. I want to have a reason well thought out, not because we have a gut feel. Um, if we have a player who's coming back, there's a health concern and they're doing rehab and so on, the work ethic piece is going to be really important. And if I know that player, the work ethic isn't there, I'm going to be concerned about even they're very talented and the stuff was great before injury. If I feel like the makeup isn't there and the work ethic isn't there, I'm not betting on the player to get back. So. 
those are all things that make up, you know, and I also think players can make other players around them better. It's very hard to quantify that, but it's very real. I've seen it many times. What that's worth, 10%, 20%. Um, but there are players that can swing players one way or the other. You guys brought up something interesting there in that uh, your decision making, right? Um, what's the management, what's the proper management style? Meaning are there times where I know I'm right, they're all wrong, or I need to listen to everybody since you are the ultimate decision maker? One-on-one -on -one conversations. I mean, there, there's, there's certainly uh, plenty of, of, of opportunity for us to, to have group discussions, and we are in the gray area a lot of times. We don't know if our decisions are right until three, four years into the future, mm -hmm. right? And, and, but you, you have to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with your people so they understand your point of view, maybe a directive you're getting from ownership, uh, maybe a piece of medical information that you know that you can't share with the masses. So you've gotta have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. And when you do that, and a decision is ultimately made, regardless of what end of the, the debate you are on, everybody feels at least their opinion was heard and it's being tested. But in leadership, it, you've, gotta, you've gotta learn to transfer responsibility. Give power away to others, let them run their departments, let them do their jobs, and you gotta be a cheerleader for them. You've gotta, you've gotta motivate them. You certainly gotta ask questions, because if you don't have the information, you can't properly motivate and inform ownership uh, to continue to follow the plan. How about you guys? Because you're, you're the big guy, right? And, and people might be part, af afraid to push back on you. How do you know this person's pushing back on me properly? Dayton's had a great point. It's, it, the toughest part for me going into this job was, was delegating. I mean, you're making trades you've never seen a player. You're drafting players you've never seen. You're giving millions and millions of dollars to a guy that you don't even know. Mm -hmm. Your people better know him, and you better trust the people who know. And you know, your reputation and your, your, uh, your livelihood is based on the people that you hire around you. And, and the trust factor and the loyalty factor can't be overstated. And, and it's, uh, it's something that I had to learn because when I saw a player and I, I, I scouted him, I saw him and I evaluated and I had a good comfort level with him, those decisions are easier for me than not seeing the player and making a, making a big trade uh, uh, on, on just on gathering information and, and, and knowing the scout that you're getting it from and, and trusting, trusting guys that, uh, that, you know, that on, on guys that you have to rely on to, to make your decisions. Uh, you know, we, we signed, we signed Trevor Rosenthal. They asked me, well, what'd you, what you see in Rosenthal? I said, I haven't seen him. Never, never seen him. <laughs> I liked him. You know, the, the guy who I sent out there, so he liked him. He said, you know, give him $7 million and we did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you better know the guys that you're sending out there. You better trust the guys that you hired and believe in them, and and, de and delegate and uh, and and support them th support them throughout. Because you know, scouting and evaluating is is a is a game of failure, and you're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong every so often, and you, you have to uh, you have to take that into consideration. How about you guys talk to me about decision making then, and 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 push back within your own organization? I don't think any of us want there to be a lack of pushback. We don't want just the entire department, you know, saluting the flag that they think or, you know, going whichever way they think the wind is blowing because right. it makes us happier, those who make a decision happy. So the resistance is healthy. The conversation and the debate is healthy. Uh, at the end, when ultimately we make a decision that goes against an individual or a group of individuals, I do think, as Dayton alluded to, it's important to make sure you have those individual conversations so that they understand why you went against. That they were heard, fundamentally that they were heard, and here's why we decided to go a different route, whether it's because the analytics or the health or unknown information that we can't disclose, whatever. Just as long as they remain empowered enough and comfortable enough to challenge. Because once people stop challenging us, then you've suddenly become a sole practitioner and that's not what any of us are gonna have success doing. I, I agree with all these points. I remember 2010, Jose Batista, we have to decide on a big extension for him. Uh, we had big debate in the office. And we, again, back then, we used data to make the decision. Ball off bat was very strong. He had swing changes that we believed in, work ethic, all those things were all lined up. But then we had R&D analytical side saying, this guy's 29 years old, it doesn't make sense. Um, there's no, there's no, com there's no com comparable going forward. And we were split. We ultimately decided to make the, the signing and do it. And we didn't, we weren't that thrilled with it, but we felt it was the right decision. But 
we were basically three to three. And I remember calling in the three individuals that were against the signing. I called them into my office and I said, look, I love the fact that you didn't agree with this. Don't stop. Just because we went this, this way, like was talked about, it does, I need to hear those things. I need the debate. You know, the other component too is when we have meetings, I talk a lot about all the, all the errors that we've made, all the errors that I've made, the mistakes I've made. I want to encourage that. I like to look back and go through where did we miss, what could we have done better. So I think as someone who oversees the, the, the entire department, the more the errors that I admit that I, that I show to the staff, they have the ability to do that as well. Yeah. Sure, and we all get better. That's how, that's how we're, we're going to get better. So I think it's really key. Digital innovation, data analytics, and performance optimization are revolutionizing baseball, just as they're transforming companies around the world. You're listening to the Executive Access Podcast, The Business of Baseball, presented by Cohen Resnick. General Managers Alex Anthopoulos, Rick Hahn, Dayton Moore, and Mike Rizzo, along with MLB Network's Brian Kenny and Dan O'Dowd, detail how technology has helped them with decision-making, scouting, and teaching players and coaches ways to improve that will strengthen the overall level of their teams. We have more tools than ever before in this uh, now war of information. Uh, for me, I know... It's fascinating to see the role of sabermetrics analytics go from this wide, expansive view to now tactical, day-to-day, the battle between the pitcher and the batter. With StackCast and everything you have, Mike, at your disposal, how do you implement that, use that, get it on the field? Well, your your toys are at your fingertips. In in the GM box where we watch the game, we have have all the analytics on the screen, you know, spin rate, extension. You're uh, watching that. We're watching what? it really? in live in live time. We've you know we've got uh, we've got our, our, our we're watching it live. We've got the game on a five second delay. We've got all the Statcast information on on a screen. We've got our minor league affiliates playing st- streaming on TVs in the box. So we've uh, we've got a lot of a lot of things mm. going on. There's the the like you said the tools we call them toys. They're at your fingertips, and uh, and those are those are things that we take you know we take with us. To, uh, uh, we have a, we have a program that we've built from scratch, uh, our own uh, analytical program that we built from scratch. We call it Pentagon, since we're you know in Washington <laughs> D.C. and uh, and we've got uh, we've got tons and tons of information there that uh, that we can prepare anything that the coaching staff wants that they need to. Uh, it's at their fingertips. It's one press of the button, one press of the button away uh, from having uh, real information to these guys in real time. Yeah, no, but you watch. That's fascinating. So in real time, you watch. Now not they're having a scotch anymore. No. Now it's not, not you, uh, but you're watching this in real time. What, what is it like for yeah, you? Yeah, I think same, same thing. We have access to all that information. I think the most exciting thing about things like StatCast and so on, just the, the opportunities to be able to go down to, to a coach and talk about an outfielder and say, uh, routes are off or they're late with the reaction times going back on a ball coming in on a ball we can quantify those things we can bring a player in and walk them through it and say the, we have an area that we've we know this is an area that you can improve upon it as an office we can't tell you how you can correct that that's where your coach is going to come into play and you can work with that individual player but rather than using a subjective the eye test I think he's a little late reacting he's slow on the first step you know things like that we can quantify it now, and we can let a coach know, we can let a player know, and then we can track as that player improves. But a coach can identify certain things now and work on certain things with the data that, that we have. It solves disagreements. It solves debate because as a, as a general manager, when, when you want to discuss the development of a player uh, or the outcome of a player and you give your opinion on what you, believe, what you see, oftentimes you get pushback. Well, now we've got the information that can just validate that. And, and it, it frees everybody up, uh, and, and it, it lessens uh, the confrontation. But the coaches have to buy into it. And, and the, the players coming up today, they want information, right? And so where, where we're all doing a very good job, uh, I believe, is when players are entering your organization, part of their orientation is, okay, this is how we use analytics. This is how we use the advanced data. Some of you are ready for it. Some of you are not. And, but together, we, we are going to uh, discuss this and we're going to come up with a plan of, of when to implement certain things and when not. But the, but the coaches have to buy. And you can't have a situation where the front office is saying, this is important, we're spending this money, and the coaches are you know, chirping behind your back and undermining well, you. Well, so let me ask you that question then. How, how do you get that information in a way down to your staff where you get, you get buy-in? Because the intellectual level of 
one area of your organization may be totally different than the intellectual right. area and, of another part of your organization. I do think over the course of the, the last few years, as you've seen not only other organizations have success using this information, but also as Dayton touched on, the players that we're getting through the draft and coming up through player development are hungry for this information. That some coaches who may have initially been a little bit resistant or, or not getting themselves up to speed on, on how these can possibly be used, have dropped that resistance. They've seen the success elsewhere. They've seen the players wanting and hung, being hungry for that information and that being an important part of their development. So it's really, uh, it, it sounds silly because maybe we were talking about three to four years ago, but it, it's a bygone era when you really have to worry, I think, about a coach pushing back necessarily. Mm -hmm. Now there might still, there's still gonna be a hearty debate about what, what we're seeing and why and what the numbers say and why and how do we get this better. But even our, our, our oldest coaches at the, at the highest level, the guys who have been in their positions for decades plus, are hungry for that information to get themselves better. Any it, concern it, on it, too much information going down there? Yeah, it was one of the points I was going to make. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, and there's no cookie cutter. You, you, you have to. It's, it's all individual. Some guys process better than others. Some guys absorb better than others. And uh, you know, there's, there's certain guys that uh, that you less is more. And, and there's certain guys who dive into it, and you know we we often like the you know the the captains of the team, the the catchers, the catchers that are are, are usually the you know the guys that are really studying studying the analytics, the the advanced reports and that type of thing. And uh, you know we you know Max Scherzer is 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 the Kurt Schilling of our team. He's he does so much so much preparation, and uh, uh, that uh, you know he's he's so prepared for the game, uh, but you you can't you can't put that. On, on every pitcher, it's just not. It's just, they're just not built that way. Some of them, and uh, some of them want to sign and throw to pitch, and uh, and like less is more for some of them. But uh, there's a lot of information. On our regular shows on the network, we're, we're always trying to figure out the lessons of the postseason. It, it just finished. It was fascinating. It was tactical. It was like all-out warfare uh, of of personnel, bullpens, uh, benches, everything else. Um, it seems like your team won a World Series, Dayton. It's like it's quaint by comparison. <laughs> Only a few you years know, ago. What, what are the lessons well, of this you know year? What? It's it's all fascinating, as you said. But uh, one of my mentors, Bill Fisher, who just passed away, Bill Fisher would always say, "Believe what you see, not what you think." And so you you have to you have to combine that with the information that you have. So right? what did we see? Well. You know, and, and Alex brought up a point. He said, you know what, and I've learned this too. Early on, I'd go with my gut a lot, and I learned not to go with my gut as much, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and go with the information and trust a process, right? Um, but but I, think, I think you can win in multiple ways, and you have to win in multiple ways. As you're talking about the pitching, and a lot was said about that. The bottom line is, Brian, you got to get 27 outs. However you feel you can best get 27 outs on that particular day, you've got to match up and do it, and you worry about tomorrow, tomorrow in the postseason, and that's that's my personal philosophy with that. What did we learn? I completely agree. It's about you're just trying to get out at, at this point. I know so much has been talked about with how much we're going to the bullpen and so on. Um, a lot of these things are well thought out. Uh, they don't always work out, and that's certainly you're gonna. Everyone's gonna watch and. I told uh, Brian during the playoffs, I said, you know, we, we'll talk and prep and we'll walk through things. I said, look, at the end of the day, you're the one who has to go up on, at the end of the day and talk to the media, talk to the fans. You better feel good about the decisions that you're going to make. We've walked through this. We've talked about this. We've met. We've gone through lineups and who will line up against who in the bullpen and so on. But you have to be able to feel good about the decision that you're going to make. And you need to have some, some feel during the game as well. So we may think right-right sliders and right-right curveballs against certain guys work, but if you're seeing during the game that the guy doesn't have his curveball, the guy doesn't have his slider, you better go off script. Otherwise, we'll have a computer doing it, and it's not that simple. So that element um, to have a little bit of feel and do, do those things, but, uh, you know, again, I, I, like Dayton said, just worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. I do think we can, we can worry about that a little too much. Win that, that game that day, get the outs that day. Rick, what about you? We talk about quaint. Uh, you know, last time we won a championship, we had four starters throw complete games in yeah. the ALCS. So we, that might be a bygone era now. Yeah. Uh, look, it, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm getting tired of being so bitter in October that we're not part of it, that I can't watch the postseason. So I did watch a little bit more of the postseason this year than I have in recent years. 
especially since my kids are usually turning it on. I think you saw not only, obviously, the, the amount of bullpenning uh, that went on during this past postseason, but the, the roster flexibility and the positional changes you saw in-game was at a new level. Uh, both of those go towards, again, in the, in the short series, prioritizing and getting through those 27 outs any way you can but also the, the flexibility of having a, a, a championship roster, having guys who have the ability to do, contribute in multiple ways to beat you, uh, not just on the pitching side of things where you have starters relieving and guys going multiple innings out of the pen, uh, but on the position player side and having that deep and powerful of a roster where you're prepared for any potential matchup to just you know play the percentages and play the odds to put you in the best position to win. What about you, Mike? Yeah, just yeah, just you know, create a roster that gives the manager as much flexibility as he can, and play. Yeah, it's it's matchup baseball. It's it's you know it's win or go home. You know you gotta you gotta face every game like it's uh, like it's game seven and uh, and try to win that game. You know, to me, the secret to you know people ask me, and we haven't we haven't won a World Series fortunately as an assistant, and uh, in '01 haven't won one since. Uh, it, to me, give yourself a chance. To win the World Series by getting to the world by getting to the playoffs, win divisions, get 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 into the tournament and and see what happens and and take your chances. You know what I found it fascinating because to me both teams were kind of put together dramatically differently. It speaks to your point. You know, one relied on a few core players and a lot of platooning advantages, and then the other one ran out pretty much an everyday lineup. You know, day in and day out. So it shows you can win. Either way, I will say now that I'm in this role watching it aesthetically, that watching the Red Sox play, mm -hmm. seeing balls put in play in particular, you know, seeing consistency of defense, seeing starting pitchers that got a little deeper in games, was a better watch. You know, it was a more enjoyable brand of baseball. But if I'm, I mean, if I'm running a team, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to win because that's what your responsibility is. And so I'm just curious from your guys' perspective, you know, Understanding your role is to win games, but do you like some of the trends that you see that we saw in postseason this year? Because it was different. It was different. Postseason was 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 way different. Uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, honestly, I, I, I like I like the traditional games where you're, you know your big horses are your starters and they go deep into games. But it's uh, you know it might be a bygone era right now. But uh, you know I like the days. Uh, I harken back to the days where we had Johnson and Schilling and and uh, and you know here's the ball guys. You know get us to the promised land. But uh, I think that today with the, with the matchups and uh, and the the pressure the pressure to win and and uh, and this this kind of microwave baseball that we that we play and uh, that we call bullpenning and that type of thing whatever whatever phrase you want to put on it it's it's maximizing your maximizing your chances to 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 get out mm -hmm. use the best matchups you can and and don't save don't save don't save your 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 big boy for tomorrow's game it's it's get him out today let's win today we'll figure out tomorrow and 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 go to war you know how about even just um you mentioned platoon advantage right how what's the um um, what, what's the correct area to land in between giving players ownership and then matchup, what you call matchup baseball? What do you think of that, Dayton? Because, uh, I mean, platooning goes back to Casey Stengel and won five straight titles that way. It's not, it's not brand spanking new, and yet uh, there was criticism of the Dodgers of, hey, you have a different team every day. How are these guys established? Your thoughts on that? What's the psychology of the team? Okay. How do they manage it in their clubhouse? How do the players feel? Who are the alpha males? Who are the, who are the people that, because um, ultimately they have to come together and win for each other. If they're trying to win for self, you will not win a championship. You've got to want to compete for one another. That's how you win. And if the players are fine with that, then go for it. It'll work. If not, then it becomes an issue. But I do believe in the postseason, first of all, there's no routine play. There's no routine play defensively. A lot of pressure on defenders to make plays. There's no uh, routine situation on the basis. It's, it's, it's challenging to score from second in the postseason. Go first to third. You've got to make the pressure on your third base coach. I mean, so there's no routine plays. That's why you have to be able to win in multiple ways. Uh, and then going back to Dan's point about the aesthetics, and we all got this start because fundamentally we were fans, and there was a brand of baseball that drew us in as, as young fans, or was passed down through the generations to us. 
in the positions we're in now, I feel like we don't really have that luxury anymore, no, though. We ha as you hit on, hit on the nail on the head there, our job is to win games. Right. And it may not be pretty. We may be too many substitutions. There may be too much bullpenning. There may not be the complete game shutouts that we all you know, grew up enjoying, perhaps, when we were young. But we don't have that benefit of having that macro view. It's winning tonight or winning in the postseason, and that's how we're going to be judged at the end. Uh, it may come, there may come a time years from now when we're in different positions where we sort of look at where the game has become while we were general managers and say, you know, perhaps it would have been better if we had stuck to the script this way or that way. But given the expectation of winning in this chair and how that's the end-all be-all, you really can't spend too much time worrying about the aesthetics, I feel. I mean, I... When you look at what happened with, you know, with the platoons and you look at what L.A. did, I mean, they got the World Series back-to-back -back years. And, and exactly. And obviously, I mean, I was in, I was part of that organization. Players bought in um, top, top to bottom. They had great, great success. I mean, they lost to two great clubs. The Astros and the Red Sox were tremendous clubs. And one was Game 7. And obviously, we saw an unbelievable team with, with the Red Sox. So, um, I completely agree, sure, from an aesthetic standpoint, you'd love to see the, the, the guys going deep into games, but I remember years ago the, when the Cardinals won, I remember Mark Sipchinski coming in early, and there was, all the talk was about the bullpen and how much that was being used. That was a while ago, and then there was, everyone talked about it in free agency and going out to acquire guys. Obviously, Dayton, when you guys won the World Series, you guys had a great pen. I remember the Angels, when they won the World Series, they had a, gr a great pen, so I don't think the concept of having great bullpens in the playoffs is, is new. I think we are pulling guys a little bit sooner, um, but I do think those elite guys are, are going deep into games. The guys like Max Scherzer, Verlander, and so on, they're going deep into games. So um, I do think part of this is the quality of the starter and the type of game he's having. I mean, like I, like I talked about earlier, third time through, through the order is a real thing, but there are times where there's a feel element where a guy's got good stuff, he's rolling. It's not just the minute that third time through the order comes through. If he's got good stuff and he, you have to be able to still watch the game and be able to adjust off a script and off a plan. So um, that's why you have a guy down there doing that job to make the, make the decision. I think that's, that's the question, isn't it? He, but, he's, but he's rolling. He looks great. And you're like, but it's not going to continue. Like how? And yet I know what you're saying. Like maybe that day. No, 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 no. It's spinning differently. The, he feels better yeah, it's today. A, it's He's the box got, the managers like, in, though, because, you know, the analytics tell you to get the guy out sooner rather than later. He's in an almost a no-win situation, other than if he gets him out sooner and the guy he brings in picks it up and a beat and you win the game. But if he takes him out and the guy behind him doesn't come in and perform... Yeah. Then he's going to get second guess because he left him in. It's all about who the alternative is. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. But all right, how about uh, it's also blame aversion, right? If you left the, your starting pitcher out there and he gets blown up, okay, well, he lost it. You go and get a relief pitcher and he gets blown up, that's your fault. Sure. So where, where are we? Like when you're talking with your staff about when we, not Max Scherzer, right? You're going to roll with him a little longer. But a more average pitcher or a good pitcher, how do you make that decision? Four and a third shutout. But we think trouble is coming. How do you make that call? Well, I think I think uh, you you hit on the head where it's, you, you mentioned Max Scherzer. I, I think that uh, there's you you're going to earn the right mm -hmm. to go deeper in the games right. by by your performance and your track record and your history. Uh, there's certain there's certain guys that the uh, you know that the, the piece of paper will uh, more or less tell you I better get somebody up even though he's got a three hit shutout in the in the fourth inning because of this number right here, you know, uh, third time through or whatever whatever the the analytics say. Now you can you could use your gut feel, and I say gut feel is experience, and, and uh, uh, it's not just a gut feel how you how you're feeling. It's the, your, the how you feel it becomes from your experiences with this particular pitcher and that type of thing, and and because of the analytics and because of your history with this this guy, you. You may have a gut feel that I'm going to leave him in. He's rolling. He's you know he's he's rolling through the lineup. Let him go. But you always you always have a, a quick a quick a quick hook to the bullpen. Get somebody going because I know what may be coming. All right. What's the fault? Yeah. So I think the other thing too is how does the four and a third look? Is mm -hmm. it line shots, hard contact, deep counts, walking guys? That's part of it. And you know this now. You're saying you're watching it. Right. So that's. How does the four and a third look, the shutout? It may, it may not, we've said it many times, the line is not as good as the actual performance and the other way around. Mm -hmm. You know, did we boot balls behind him and so on. So, you know, there's certain guys that will tire. They get to 80, 85, and then all of a sudden, you know, their stuff's going to really drop off and decline. How is this stuff? How is it? So, 
That's part of the job of the guy down there doing that job. But it takes more courage do. now to actually for a manager to leave a guy in in our game yeah. than to take a guy out. Yeah. No, I don't agree with that. I agree. You take a lot of heat if you take a guy out and your bullpen fails, though, right? Give me your philosophy on that. Well, look, part of it, too, is during the regular season, sometimes you have to lose the battle to win the war. There's nights where you're going to have to get six out of this guy just because of the way the bullpen's been used, what you had the night before, what may have happened, what you got lined up for the next series. It's not just a, a snapshot of that individual game. Now, in the, in the postseason, a little bit different with the off days. You can be a little more strategic in terms of how you make that deployment. But as we talked about earlier, when we talked about the manager having the information, but at the same time having the latitude to put the players in the best position to succeed, all of our guys know that that potential red number's coming. That third time through, they see what the matchup's looking like but they also know what they're seeing with their eyes in terms of the performance, what they're seeing in terms of the, the contact and the reaction of the hitters, and what they're seeing when they're interacting with the players in the dugout or who they may be going to in the bullpen. So again, the, we don't by any stretch require him to play the game strictly by the numbers. Understand the numbers, know what you're going against when you decide to go against, and just have a reason why. No different, no different. But I, I think the really good managers and coaching staffs they obviously analyze the information. They have a script going into the game, what they would like to see happen in a perfect world. But every time they get an out, they got to ask themselves, next time that hitter comes to the plate, can this pitcher get him out the exact same way? If he can't, you're going to have to think through that because you can't get out the good hitters the same way over and over and over. They're really good. They've got the video. They make the adjustments. They know. They've got the analytics too. And so they're very prepared. And so, but you've got to ask yourself, once, once a hitter makes an out, can we get him out the same way the next time? One last thing. Um, there wasn't even a real opener before May 19th. And then we saw openers in playoff games. And there was more than 80 openers used in the major leagues. Does that make you think, like, what, 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 what are we doing? Like, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but... but I mean, is that just like someone has to move to that and then everyone else can move? Where, where are we on that? I think, it, I think it's all roster-based. I mean, to, you know, to me, if, uh, if, if, if you're an organization or, or a roster that needs that, needs that, type, of, that type of guy once every, every five days, then you'll have to, you have to do it. You know, I think all of us would rather have five, five horses that you throw in the middle but you of don't. the field. Well, you, you, you kind of sort of did, but like most, most don't, right? So how open are you to this concept? Oh, very open. I, look, I think there is a copycat element, and it does take some courage to be the one to go first. But once you start seeing that success elsewhere, I think teams are quick to try to get in on the good very stuff before now. that efficiency yeah. leaves. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think the Chicago White Sox are necessarily unique in that regard, in that all 30 of us, if you see something that's working for someone else in the league, you're going to try to replicate it. Uh, those who are taking that first step deserve credit for taking that first step. Even if all 30 of us are debating it, there is an element of courage of being that first one to do it and you know, withstand whatever uh, criticism from conventional wisdom or usage comes, comes your way. You dabbled with it yeah, we in, did the, in the postseason. The yeah, yeah, we did it. We did it in the playoffs. And we talked, you know, uh, Newcomb started for us, but if he was rolling, he was going to go deep. But, you know, um, he walked three guys, didn't strike anybody out. There was, like we talked about, there was some hard contact. We made some great defensive plays. He had good stuff um, in terms of, you know, how hard he was throwing and so on. But, you know, he came out of the game early, um, and that was the right move. But I think during the year, completely different. I mean, guys like Snell made all of his starts, and he had a great year. So um, I think you have guys you have to be able to send down. Young guys with, with options are certainly really important. So not everybody can do it. Uh, during the playoffs, I think especially we faced L.A., we knew they'd have one lineup against right-handers, one lineup against left-handers, um, and our backs were up against the wall. We needed to win that game, all hands on deck, everyone was going to be available. So game one and two, we used our two best starters that had great years. That made sense for us. We needed to make a change afterwards. So I think it really depends on who you're playing, who's available to you, um, and then during the season, obviously you need to be able to send guys up and down. When you go to sign a player and you love his talent, but you're not sure about his character, but you love his talent. How much does that relationship to the community enter your thought process? It's vital for us in Kansas City. I mean, we, we, we want our fans, and all of us are just saying, we want our fans to love our players. And, and, but the only way that's going to happen is our players have to understand the importance of connecting with the fans. You, you want them to connect with the fans, so in turn the fans want to know their story. 
and when they want to know their story, they're going to come to the ballpark and they're going to support them through through the down times that they're all going to face over 162 games. So I think it's I think it's crucial. You guys agree? Yeah, I mean, I I would say, look, obviously our job is to win games, and that's what's going to carry the day. I do think there's, there's a real component to the fan base that they like your team, that, and I think a community can embrace a team, can rally around a team, and I think the people you have on that team are a part of that. Now, not at the expense of winning. You're not going to have a, you know, 25 great guys that aren't good, good players. It's not going to matter, but I do think a team that's loved in the community and well-liked in the community is really, you, you can see it. Now, the other component, too, I think, like you said, with anybody that you sign, you're going to give out a big, huge contract to a player. That player immediately becomes the face of your team. They set the example for the other players. You're telling all the players in that clubhouse, these are the things that we value. So you better feel really good about that player that you're signing for those, those dollars because you're basically stuck. If you sign someone that's not going to co coexist and work with the other departments and be a good teammate, be a leader, set a good example, you really can't do anything at that point. You're not going to send the guy down. You're not going to release the player. It's hard to trade him. You're stuck. So not only are you betting on talent, and we're all going to be seduced by talent. That's the barrier to entry to get in. But the larger the commitment, the larger the contract, in my opinion, you better nail the character, the makeup, and know exactly what you're getting into. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't think I can add too much to that other than we do charge our scouts with when they're out in the field learning as much as they can about a player's makeup about his character how he interacts in the clubhouse how he goes about his work what he does in the community it's obviously something that all of us emphasize at our minor league affiliates they instill those values early on and and ultimately what it means to be a white sock and part of that is the presence in the community uh, you do have to be careful not to get seduced by the talent in the end you see something that if it's a if it's a long-term extensive deal, obviously you're going to be able to check yourself. If it's a short-term fix, you got to ride that balance a little bit sometimes, where you think, okay, this is going to make us better in the short term, and we can withstand what any disruption may cause to the clubhouse. Ultimately, more often than not, experience has shown, I believe, those tend not to work out when you take that chance or you compromise on character at the, the short-term expense of winning. You feel the same way, Mike? Yeah, you know, we, we, uh, we pride ourselves with the Nats that, uh, you know, when you're reading about the Nationals player, it's in the sports section. You know, it's in the sports section. It's, it's nowhere else in the newspaper. <laughs> so it's, it, yeah. it's, impo it's important mm -hmm. to us. And uh, I always, you know, I go by the adage that, uh, that when you sign these long-term deals, these, bi these big, money, big money deals, we've done it, you know, several times, you better, you better know the person better than the player because you're signing the person. Because uh, it, you, once you sign that contract, you find something you like about them because you got them. <laughs> and you, you better you better like the person as much or better than the player that you're signing and the talent level that you're signing and the guy better be ready to go and uh, and you know we have several players that live in, in the in the uh, uh, in the area all all season long but most of the guys these guys scatter all over the country so when they're when they're there during the season uh, our guys do a, a great job with with all the different places that you go to in D.C., uh, Walter Reed Hospital and that type of thing, and it's, uh, they, they do a terrific job for us. Your, your job is to win games. Your job is not to um, um, check on the evolution of baseball, and yet it evolves right in front of us, and you're all very aware of it, uh, whether it's the ball not being in play, strikeouts being up, uh, bullpen usage. It, it's all happening. Pace of play, all of that. What trends are you paying attention to, Dayton, you first? And what would you like to tweak or change for the future of the game? Well, for, for me, it's just, it's at the youth level. Um, the, the, the young boys, the young girls that are attracted to our game. And uh, they're obviously our future. And I think we're doing an incredible job with the play ball initiative, uh, what we're doing with the, the academies. Um, the, the importance of our, of our players getting involved in the communities and just growing the game. And those are the areas that we've got to spend, continue to spend a lot of time and a lot of resources. I think baseball is the greatest game in the world to grow leaders. And we have to be able to make sure that uh, our young fan base understands that and to motivate moms and dads to have their kids grow up playing our game. And so that's, that's what I pay most attention to. Look, we love this game. We're not just passionate about it, we love it. We show up every single day to try to grow the game. That's our spirit. 
And uh, it, it's, uh, I, I think baseball's doing an incredible job, and we're going to see more and more kids playing this game. They're starting to play. Our, we're getting better athletes playing. We're competing against the other sports, and uh, I'm really excited about the future. But you want more investment. You're saying more investment. Don't just wait for baseball fans no, to pop up. And no come. doubt. Continue, yeah. to, continue yeah. to grow the game in, in all areas of, of the United States and throughout the world and, uh, because, again, it's, it's the greatest game in the world. I mean, it's, I'm going to take the answer in a totally in one other area. I just think where the game is going right now, I think there's just a ton being done on the player development side. And when we say player development, you think we're talking about the minors. But player development at all levels, at, at, the, at the big league level, the minor league level, I think the infusion of data and information to make players better, to tweak things, make changes. We can quantify so many things now. And we're not even close to done yet in, in doing that. I think there's just more and more that we can continue to dig into. Um, and to improve upon. I think long-term things I'd like to see continue to improve in terms of the game, and I know the commissioner's office has done a great job with this, is, and some people debate this in terms of a time clock with the game, just the pace of play, continue to eliminate the dead time in the game. And I think we're, we are doing that, we're doing everything we can, the commissioner's office is as well, but I think the more that we can do that, um, you know, that's gonna only improve things in terms of the quality and in terms of fans following and so on. We're competing so much, I have young kids, and. They'll be on a plane, they'll have their iPad on their lap, they'll have the TV going. There's just so much around them uh, right now. So um, I that do think, you, right? yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I just think cutting out the dead time with all, with all the other sports that we're competing with, I think is pretty important. It, it's nice to see the trend of starting to celebrate some of the younger players and some of the personalities, the, the uh, advertisement I saw there in the postseason about the unwritten rules and all the guys who are supposedly violating the unwritten rules. That's fantastic. That, uh, the, the focus on what's great about the game, what's enjoyable about the game, as opposed to potentially lamenting what has changed about the game or how it was better 15, 20, 30 years ago or whenever. Everyone has that time frame where the game was better for them. Whether you're talking to my dad or myself or even my 15-year-old probably thinks the game might have been better five years ago or something. Uh, but there's so much to embrace and enjoy about the current game and the personalities playing it. That that's where I'd like to see more of the focus. And I, I think we're starting to see that trend, and it's, it's good for attracting that next generation. More bad games of not hating on bad flips, et cetera. Precisely. Things. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. That's more my much. trend, too. I'll, just, I'll piggyback off that. Yeah. Is that we, we've got the greatest, greatest sport out of all the sports, in my opinion. And it's the greatest game. It's flourishing. It's in, it's in great shape. We in baseball need to talk baseball up, not mm -hmm. talk baseball down. Mm -hmm. we, we need to talk positively about the game that we love. And, and of course, it's not perfect, but it is, it is a terrific game. And we need to celebrate the game and talk it up instead of beating it down. Bingo. Excellent. Excellent way to, to wrap up, too. Guys, thank you so much. We learned a lot here. Gee, it was great. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Uh, we'll do it again. Perfect. We'll, we'll Tomorrow, to I yeah, we'll <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Right, thank yeah. you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Executive Access Podcast, The Business of Baseball, presented by Cone Resnick. Advisory, assurance, tax. Are you ready to achieve your vision? Let's get going at ConeResnick.com. That's C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K.com. Thanks to MLB Network's Brian, Kenny, and Dan O'Dowd, and General Managers Alex Anthopoulos, Rick Hahn, Dayton Moore, and Mike Rizzo. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein.